This morning, we read from Acts 27, starting in verse 18. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up and said to them, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have been spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Thanks, David. Good morning. And Happy New Year. Uh, Jonah. You may have heard of him. He was a prophet of Israel. And God called Jonah to preach to the Assyrians. Jonah did not want to preach to the Assyrians. Jonah did not like the Assyrians. They were a violent, evil people who were oppressing his own people, the Israelites. So... Because Jonah didn't want to do what God had called him to do, Jonah ran. And Jonah didn't just run, Jonah ran to the sea. Now, if you know anything about the scriptures, and you know how the scriptures describe the sea, you know that when Jonah is running to the sea, Jonah is essentially saying to God, I would rather die than do what you ask me to do. The sea in the scriptures is a terrifying place. The sea is what Noah has to face, what Moses has to face, what Jonah has to face. Jesus has to face the sea. Daniel, Revelation, Job, and the Psalms all describe the sea as a place of chaos, of death. It's even a place of evil. The sea is where armies go to be destroyed. It's the thing that breaks open and swallows the whole earth. It's where storms rise up and threaten ships. It's where prophets get eaten by giant fish. At the end of Revelation, if you remember, this is how John describes the new heaven and new earth. He says, there will be no more sea. That is, chaos, evil, death, all those will be done away with. So when scripture describes the sea, it's describing a place of chaos and evil. So when Jonah runs to the sea, he's saying, God... I would rather die than do what you're asking me to do. Because Jonah does not love the people that God loves and has called Jonah to love. I'd rather die than love those people. Of course, we know the rest of the story. God sends a storm. Jonah's thrown overboard. He's eaten by a giant fish. The fish spits him out. Jonah finally does what God asks him to do. And he goes and preaches in the city of Nineveh. And he, he so much doesn't want to preach there. You remember that part? He, he tells God, you're a God of grace and love and compassion. If I go preach there, 
they're going to be saved. And they are. God is so merciful that God saves the people who are evil and violent. God gives mercy, and Jonah gets really angry about it. And the book ends with God chastising Jonah. He says, Shouldn't I be concerned about Nineveh, this giant city, with 120,000 people in it who don't know their right from their left? God cares for people, even evil, violent, foolish people. And he calls his people to care for others, people who are lost, foolish, and evil. Life can feel like the sea, can't it? Chaotic, violent, evil even. Maybe 2019 was that way for you. Maybe 2019 felt like a violent, chaotic year. Or maybe you look at 2020 and you look ahead and you go, oh, this is going to be an insane year. Maybe 2020 is going to feel like the sea. Maybe you have family issues. Maybe you have concerns about finances. Maybe you have uh, health concerns. You need a job or there's family stuff. Or maybe you look at 2020 and as Nicholas just prayed, you look at the election year and there's impeachment talk and all of this feels really, really chaotic. Maybe you're alienated from God or you're uncertain in your relationship with the church. Some of us are already at sea. Some of us are heading into the sea. And some of us are going to be at sea at some point. All of us will be at sea. While we're at sea, we have a couple questions to ask. Is God still with us? And can we still fulfill our purposes in God's kingdom while life is chaotic? While we are at sea? At sea or not, we have a calling. And we have a God who empowers us to fulfill our calling. God created us and calls us for his purposes because we follow Jesus, our king. We are his ambassadors. He is enabling us to continue to live out the calling that he's given to us. In our passage today, Acts 27, Paul is at sea. He's on a sea voyage and his life is in chaos. So literally and figuratively, Paul is at sea. He's a prisoner on his way to Rome after spending years on trial after trial for no good reason. But while he's at sea, God is showing up. God is going to use Paul to bless and care for others. And we'll see in this passage, as we watch Paul, that God is still with Paul at sea. And unlike Jonah, Paul will carry out his mission while he's at sea. Let's pray and dive into this passage. Father, we give you thanks and praise that you are Lord over the sea. Thank you that no matter our circumstances, you are with us. Thank you that you demonstrated that by sending your son to to us in the person of Jesus and by Jesus facing the powers of chaos and evil and sin and death, you defeated them by your death and resurrection. We ask this morning that you would show yourself to us. Help us to see and to encounter you, whether we're at sea or not whether our lives are in chaos or not, whether we desire to follow you or not. Show us yourself that we might see and know that you are God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just a couple of background notes before we get into actually Acts 27. So just a reminder of where we've been in Acts. Uh, If you haven't been with us, we've been going through Acts for a little while now. We started Acts chapter 1. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he 
gives his uh, disciples a mandate. You are going to be my disciples, my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And then we've seen that play out throughout the book of Acts where the apostles are Jesus' witnesses in, Ju- in Jerusalem, and then they are persecuted and spread out to Judea and Samaria. And then we watch Paul take the message of the gospel throughout Asia Minor, and then he's on his way now to Rome. He's, he's trying to get as far to the ends of the earth as he can. He's fulfilling the mission that Jesus gave to the apostles back in Acts chapter 1. And a reminder of what we've seen with Paul over the last several chapters, he's been preaching the gospel— He's angered the Jews in Jerusalem, so they put him on trial and tried to kill him. Then the Jews brought him, or rather the Romans came and saved Paul out of the Jews. And so the Romans have put Paul on trial. And he's been on trial for several chapters of Acts. Now he's appealed to Caesar. And so he's going to Rome to be on trial before Caesar, you know, the leader of the Roman Empire. He's going to make this journey to Rome by boat. Now, unfortunately for Paul and the people on the boat, they've decided to start late in the season. You can only travel, or you could only travel the Mediterranean by boat up through about mid-September. After that, it gets a little dangerous, and nobody went by boat in November or later. Nobody. It's a bad idea. So, uh, in this chapter... uh, Luke tells us that it's after the Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement that year, normally it's in mid-September. This year, it happened to be early October. So early October is late in the season to be going by boat across the Mediterranean. That's all just background information. More background information. Luke is telling us a specific sea story, and he's telling us in specific ways. So a couple things that he does. One is he quotes from... The Odyssey. You remember the Odyssey? Homer's great story of Odysseus traveling back from the Trojan War back to his family. A ten-year journey by boat. Luke quotes from the Odyssey. Luke also quotes from the book of Jonah that we started with. Why? Why is Luke quoting from the Odyssey and from Jonah? Well, there's a bunch of reasons, but I'm going to give us three. First, Luke is telling us that the sea is dangerous. It's hard to travel by sea. People die when they travel by sea. Second, Luke is saying that God is going to get Paul to his destination. God rules over even the sea. So the sea is chaotic, deadly, violent, but God rules even the sea. And third, Luke quotes from Jonah in particular to tell us that Paul is not Jonah. Remember, Jonah was running away by sea. Paul is going exactly where God called him to go by sea. Jonah was running away from the center of the evil empire. Paul is going by boat to the center of the evil empire to preach God's good news to a people that actually were violently oppressing Paul's own people. Okay, one last thing. And then we'll jump into chapter 27. There's a lot in this chapter that we're not going to be able to talk about. We won't get to talk about the character of Julius the centurion or the kind of boats that they travel on or the nature of places they're going or the fact that Aristarchus and Luke are with Paul on this boat or 
any of the sea voyage details that, Paul, that Luke puts into the narrative. All those would be well worth your time. I invite you to go and study this passage because it's an amazing passage. We shouldn't have time. What we're going to do instead today is focus on four major scenes. So first, we're going to look at fair havens. The fateful decision that they make at fair havens. Second, we're going to look at the responses to the storm. Third, we will look at Paul's warning as the ship approaches land. And fourth, we will look at the table and the shipwreck. In each of these scenes, Luke contrasts Paul's response with the actions of others on the ship. Paul is living as a, as a follower of Jesus, caring for others and listening to God. Others on the ship care about prophets, their own situations, preserving themselves. They're caring about themselves. So as we follow the map, Paul is a prisoner on his way to Rome, and they're going through the sea. Let me start just by reading uh, 27 verses 1 through 10. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Cnidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed off to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lassia. Much time had been lost. Sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, men, I can see our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Okay, so a bunch happens here. Paul is put under the command of Julius the centurion. They hop on one boat with a bunch of prisoners. Then they head to Asia Minor. Then they hop onto another boat carrying grain from Egypt. And then they sail under Crete and land at Fair Havens. Do we have all that? Okay, at Fair Havens. Luke gives us the name of this place, Fair Havens, for a couple of reasons. One, it's the name of the place. Two, it might have been familiar to some of his readers. But three, he gives us the name of the place because it's a fair haven. It's a decent place where they're going to be safe. Right? It was a fair place for them to stay the winter. God gives Paul wisdom to know that the ship should stay put for the winter. We don't know if God gave Paul a vision of some kind or if Paul's just using his well-earned wisdom. But God is communicating through Paul to the people that God cares about. But the leaders of the ship... Okay, so Fair Havens is on one side of Crete. Phoenix, where they want to land, is on the other side of Crete. The leaders of the ship decide they want to winter closer to Rome. They're basically moving from one side of the island to the other. It's not a huge difference, but it might make some difference in time, and time is money. The quicker they get to Rome, the quicker they get paid. As Willie James Jennings says in his commentary, should they have listened to Paul? Yes. 
But their response to Paul is a typical response to a prophetic word that interrupts profit management and strategic planning. The word of God is rarely able to penetrate those lost in these calculations. When they get desperate, of course, they'll listen better to Paul. But for now, they're they're thinking about profit. And when you're thinking about profit, it's hard to listen to God. Sometimes, as in this case, God speaks to us while we are still safe. He gives us wisdom that will help us and keep us safe. And when we are at sea, God is speaking. He is working and moving and showing himself to us and using us to show himself to others. The question is, are we listening? Or do practical concerns and profit margins and strategic planning get in the way so that we don't want to hear God? In 2020, are we going to spend time listening for the word of God or will we get blinded by plans and profits? I invite us as we start 2020 to take an inventory. How much time are you spending making plans and dreaming about profits versus the time we're spending just listening to God? We can get excited about our plans. Sometimes we get a little greedy with our plans. And we leave God out of them. As I was preparing for preaching this morning, I did a little bit of inventory taking. And I recognize that this last year, 2019, I did a little more planning and a little less listening. I I find in my own ministry that when I spend time just listening to God, just waiting on him and listening for what his plans are, he shows up. He reveals himself. When the elders moved my time to spend more time with the young adult ministry, the first thing that we did, and this was, I think, God-empowered, The first thing that we did was set up a prayer time, a weekly prayer time to uh, spend time just praying for the young adults and for the ministry and for what God, just listening for what God was going to do. I invite you, when you start something new, set up a prayer time over that space. God moves and he answers prayer and he, he will reveal himself. What we looked at, but when I thought about 2019, we, we kept the prayer time in the schedule But the prayer time itself became more focused on plans and updates rather than just listening to God. So my commitment for me this year is to reuse, reorganize that time so that it's about listening to God rather than updates and plans. I invite you to, to operate in the same way. Are we listening in prayer or are we spending more time making plans and expecting profits? Let's keep going. Verse 12, since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northeast. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force, called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed through the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. 
We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. And this is when Paul hears from the angel, Men, you should have taken my advice. Don't sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage. Not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. An angel of the Lord to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. But we must run aground on some island. Against Paul's warning, the leaders of the ship decide to go on. Again, they're purpose is to sail just to the other side of Crete. But they're blown way off course. You can see the other side of Crete and then where they are. Somewhere out in the Mediterranean. This is not where they're intending to go. They have no control of the ship, so they decide to first secure the ship with supports, then they drop anchor to slow the ship down, and then they start throwing things over the side. The crew loses hope. They've stopped eating They're in despair. Luke says of himself, we all abandoned hope of being saved. And this is the moment, of course, when they start being able to hear from the Lord. Once we give up our hopes of plans and once we give up our hopes of profit, when we give up our greed and our self-centeredness, then God can speak to us in a new way, can't he? In that moment, when they're in despair, Paul gets a visit from an angel. Don't lose heart, Paul. All's going to be well. Again, we can despair when things start to go bad. When the things we built our lives on get taken from us, like a ship, security in a safe harbor, when those things are taken from us, we can head toward despair. But the reality is the storm and the sea is just a normal part of human experience. All of us will be at sea, and at sea, all of us will experience the storm. Some of us may have heard the saying that God will never give us more than we can handle. That's not the God I know. God often gives us more than we can handle. Sometimes he gives us a lot more than we can handle. He allows circumstances, like the storm in the sea, he allows circumstances that push us to and then beyond our breaking points. He did that with Jesus. He's done that with Paul. He does it with almost all of the apostles. All of them are arrested. Most of them end up persecuted and martyred. In fact, Pushing us beyond our abilities is kind of the point. God allows difficult things in our lives so that we can face our limits and learn to rely on him. So yes, God will give us more than we can handle. Be prepared for that. But do not despair. At the same time that God will give us more than we can handle, God is a God of hope. There is nothing he cannot redeem. There is no desperate situation that he cannot make right. There is no storm that he cannot navigate. 
When the disciples were in the boat with Jesus and the storm started raging and these hardened fishermen who had spent their lives on the Sea of Galilee started to despair, Jesus stood up and told the storm, be still. And the storm was still. When those same disciples were in confusion and despair after Jesus' death at the hands of the Romans, Jesus appeared in the room with them and asked for bread. Because he was and is alive. God is a God of hope. The storm, even when it's beyond what we can handle, the storm does not have the last word. Chaos and evil do not have the last word. Not even death has the last word. As the psalmist tells us, the Lord is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear when the earth gives way. When the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, when its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with its surging, he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So whatever your storm is, whatever storm you sense coming, God has a message of hope for you. The storm does not have the last word on you, on your relationships, or on who God is making you to be. So if you are facing trauma and abuse, God is with you. He has healing and protection and new life for you. If you're facing financial insecurity, God is with you. He wants to be the one to provide and care for you. If you're facing relational difficulties, God is with you. He wants to love you and he wants you to keep learning to love while he himself makes reconciliation possible. If you're facing struggles in your relationship with the church, God is with you. He is working to sharpen you and sharpen others by your presence. What if your struggle is with God? then I'd want to say God is with you. And he wants you to know that he loves you. He cares for you. And he wants to give himself to you in ways that bring goodness and healing in your life. Whatever the storms are that you're facing, God is with you. And he brings light in darkness. He brings joy through sorrows. And he brings life out of death. Okay, so sometimes we're tempted by plans and prophets. And sometimes we're tempted by despair. Paul shows us that you can keep your eyes and ears open to what the Lord is telling you and stay hopeful, even in a storm. Let's keep going. Verse 27. On the 14th night, that's a long storm for that boat to stay up. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed that we we were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. Short time later, they took soundings again, found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to, to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to, let, to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. 
So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Okay, the sailors know the ship's about to wreck. They can see what's coming. And they are the ones with the ability to navigate the sea. And they're like, if we have to navigate this shipwreck with all these people who can't swim and don't know what they're doing, we're not going to make it. So they get the brilliant idea to lower the lifeboat and get themselves out of there so that the shipwreck will be prisoners, soldiers, and whatever, whoever else passengers were on the, on the ship. Now, that's not a stupid idea if you're a sailor. They're thinking about themselves. How do I preserve my own life? But they're not thinking about who might suffer in the process, right? Paul has a different perspective. So he tells the soldiers, cut the lifeboat so that the sailors can't get away. Otherwise, we're all going to die. There's, there's nobody, if the sailors all leave, there's nobody to take care of the ship when the ship wrecks. So they do. They listen to Paul this time and they cut the lifeboat. The sailors are ready to abandon the ship while Paul is working to keep everyone together, to keep everyone safe. Paul has a whole ship perspective. The sailors are only thinking about themselves. The work of Christians in our communities is not to look out for ourselves, but to keep the whole in mind. The culture around us is training us to look out for ourselves, but that's not the way of Jesus. Within our community, within the broader culture, within the world, our job is to give ourselves away for the sake of others, just as Jesus gave himself away for the sake of the world. We have a God who takes care of the outcomes. And so we can trust ourselves to him rather than trying to take control of our own lives and keep it in our own hands. In the storm, those who follow after Jesus are called to be ready to give up a coat for a cold traveler, to give up a meal for a hungry sojourner, to give up a seat for a tired stranger, to give up our own desires for the sake of another. When we follow Jesus, our lives are no longer our own. They belong to him. Our possessions are not our own. They belong to him. Meant to be used by God for the common good. Nothing is mine anymore. Everything is his and belongs to the least of these brothers and sisters of Jesus. The poor, the tired, the hungry, widows and orphans. We are called to look out for others to love God and our neighbors first, to not look to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Again, plans and profits, despair, self-preservation, these are all temptations for all of us all the time. Paul continues to listen to the Lord, he stays hopeful, and he seeks to serve the whole community and not just himself. Okay, one last section, starting in verse 33. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. I urge you, take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread, gave thanks to God in front of them all, and he broke it 
and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they didn't recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they, let them, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. The ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Okay, first thing, the table. Sometimes God just sustains us with himself. And everyone is invited. The crew hasn't eaten in two weeks. That makes it really difficult to, one, make good decisions, and two, act out those decisions once you've made them. They don't have enough sustenance to keep going. So Paul says, let's eat. The crew has been so desperate that they haven't continued doing the things that would keep them alive. Some of us at sea... When things are chaotic, some of us don't do the basic things we need to stay alive. Some of us, on the other hand, pretend like nothing is happening, like we're rearranging deck chairs while the Titanic is sinking. There's that option. But some of us also look at the chaos around us and forget to do the basic things that are going to keep us alive. Paul says, okay, time to eat. And Luke describes this seen as though it's a communion meal. He uses the language of communion. Same language he used when Jesus introduced the communion meal in, in Luke. Then again, he uses the same language in Luke 24 when, he's been walking with the, when Jesus has been walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and Jesus breaks the bread. Same language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 11 when he describes what communion is to look like. He took bread, he gave thanks to God, He broke it, and he started to eat. Willie James Jennings again says, This simple act has no power in and of itself, but placed at the site of chaos, where death desires to reign, and announced inside a word of praise for the God who delivers, it becomes the source of hope and the sign of divine love. We are always on the ship. And the question for the church is not whether we will eat, but when and where we will offer food and under what conditions we will invite those fear-laden and troubled to eat. What Jennings is saying there, and I think what Luke is communicating to us, is that the table is a wide table. Jesus invites and welcomes prisoners and soldiers, merchants and mercenaries, those in prison and those with power. The kingdom is available to everyone. The bread of Christ's body is life-giving and filling to everyone. We just have to recognize that we are hungry. Whether we're paralyzed by fear or whether we refuse to acknowledge reality, once we come to see reality and notice that we're hungry, Christ has already made himself available to us. And he's ready to fill us 
if we will just accept his gifts. We have the bread of life, Jesus himself. And we have the privilege and blessing, as Paul does here, of offering life in Jesus to others who are starving. We can eat for ourselves, and at the same time, we can offer life to all who are broken and in need, to those ravaged by addiction and poverty, to those in our community fleeing violence as refugees, to single moms and unwanted children, to widows and orphans, to our gay and lesbian neighbors, to our lonely and isolated neighbors, to prisoners and police officers and sailors and soldiers, to those broken by racial injustice. As Paul is showing us here, we are all hungry. We are all storm-tossed, just like those around us. We can see and taste that the Lord is good. The table is available to everyone. Just after this scene, where everyone eats together on this ship, the soldiers decide, okay, if this ship is wrecking, we need to kill the prisoners. It's a tragic mistake that they're making. The soldiers have been trained by Rome. They fear Rome more than they fear God. They've been trained by Rome. They've lived in Rome. They understand what Rome is about. In Roman law, if a soldier is guarding a prisoner and the prisoner escapes, then whatever was going to happen to the prisoner gets to happen to the soldier. So these prisoners were on their way to the Colosseum to be killed, all except Paul, who's appealed to Caesar. The rest of them are going to the Colosseum to be killed. The soldiers don't want to be killed in the Colosseum. So they're content to kill all the prisoners. They've misunderstood and haven't learned the lessons that the sea has taught. They reject the dignity and worth of the prisoners and are thinking only about themselves. Their commander, Julius, stops them because he has started to really like Paul. Maybe because Julius has watched Paul and opened himself up to receive the gospel. Maybe he just really enjoyed Paul and wants to complete his mission. Or maybe he felt the companionship of a long and dangerous journey that they all went through together. In any case, Julius saves the prisoners by putting his own life and reputation on the line. Julius is acting like a follower of Jesus here. He's saying, I'm going to protect the least of these and put my own reputation at stake. He has encountered Jesus on this trip, and now he's starting to act like him. So those who can swim do. The rest float on pieces of the ship, but Luke tells us all 276 on board make it to land safely. That's amazing. Two weeks lost at sea and a shipwreck, and everyone survives. As Beverly Roberts Gaventa says in her commentary on Acts, it's not only Paul whom God delivers from the shipwreck, of course. The protection that God gave to Paul extends through the entire list of passengers. God's salvation extends to include all people. God has protected Paul, and using Paul, he's protected everyone else. God's welcome is for all of us. Everyone is invited to the table. The violence of Rome and of the world marks some people as worthy of saving 
and others as unworthy. But when we follow God by living and speaking the truth, by caring for others, even those who might want to do us harm, and by inviting others into the love of God, we are bringing life and protection and goodness to others. Remember, Jonah had decided that those Assyrians were not worth saving. But when God saves Jonah, God also saves the Assyrians. We've seen this in my family. My dad was the first of the Kramers to come to Jesus. And then his parents and his siblings and an entire family was saved. God saves us in order to save others. He blesses us in order to be a blessing to others. We've seen that we are tempted to trust our plans and profits. We're tempted to despair. We're tempted to preserve ourselves. We're tempted to reject the humanity of others. Paul refuses all those temptations. He listens to the Lord. He continues to hope. He watches out for others, and he welcomes everyone. In the end, this whole boat full of people find themselves shipwrecked without any of their cargo except human lives, but they are all alive. They wash ashore on the island of Malta, which you can see is really close to Sicily, which is really close to Italy, which was their destination in the first place. God has preserved them and put them in a place where they wanted to get to. The rest of that journey will be next week. Luke ends this passage by telling us that everyone is alive, which is a miracle of God. God has gotten them through the sea. Again, Jonah tried to run from God by running to the sea. But God will not abandon or forsake us, even when we run from him. He intends more for us than just survival. He is enabling us to love others and follow our callings, even while we're lost at sea. God is with us. Just as Jesus is with the disciples in the storm on the lake, God is with us. Today in the Roman Catholic Church calendar, today and tomorrow, is the celebration of the Feast of Epiphany, which traditionally celebrates the arrival of the Magi to give their gifts to Jesus. The purpose of Epiphany is to celebrate that Jesus is God-made flesh and that he is salvation to Jew and to Gentile. He is Israel's Messiah and Lord of all the nations. Because God is with us, we don't have to trust our plans. We don't have to worry about prophets. We don't have to despair. We don't have to reject others. Like Paul, we too can listen to the Lord. We too can continue to have hope. We can watch out for others and we can bring God's welcome to all. Jesus went through the sea of death in order to defeat chaos and sin and death. And God raised him from the dead so that we might have life. Amen.